1: Wandering through a city would be a very vibrant experience together where it would be normal to go into the the main city and see uh, bartering in the streets by people who were um, practicing their spells and and being compensated or people who were selling uh, items that they would collected. There's a lovely guild hall and so if you imagine sort of a, a medieval town then you're, you're not far off, um, and there are dwarves and there are humans and there are elves and there are torens. And, um, and the, the kind of amazing thing that happened with Corrupted Blood is that instantly as it spread into the urban centres, all of normal life just ground to a halt.
2: That was Professor Nina Fefferman. She researches the mathematics of systems through networks with a focus on disease. She's talking about an incident called Corrupted Blood in the multiplayer video game World of Warcraft, otherwise known as WoW. I'm Neil Denny, and in this episode of Converging Cultures, I want to look at how artists, writers and scientists have approached pandemics and outbreaks of disease.
1: Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been gaming since Dungeons & Dragons tabletop. So, so my, my main character at that time was, was uh, a night elf. Um, but um, one of the challenges was a new boss, a new, a new high-level, uh, malevolent creature, and he was beautiful, um, Zakhar. Uh, he was this gigantic Chinese dragon, basically. He moved in this beautiful snake-like fashion. And, and one of the spells that he cast as part of fighting him was this corrupted blood spell, which was meant to be an additional nuisance, uh, as opposed to a cataclysmic, oh my god, we've just erased society. So. Um, if you were a party of high-level players, what happened is that he would cast it on one of your players, and the function of the debuff was not only that it periodically caused damage to you, but that it caused you to recast the spell yourself in a radius around yourself. So there are two ways that were natively constructed in the game to be cured of corrupted blood. Uh, One was to die, which does tend to solve infectious diseases, <laughs> although not all of them um, and, and uh, the other was to defeat hakar but unfortunately there were there were two aspects that weren 't necessarily planned, um, and so I think one of them was probably in the back of somebody 's mind, and that was running away, and then run straight back to an urban center and, and that 's actually where where things did not go as planned, and people started dying. And then, of course, people started going to healers and asking the healers to to help. And then the healers, of course, became modes both of of the treatment but also conduits of infection. And then everything just really collapsed. And it was a number of days before uh, really even they were able to really walk into the town and experience the full weight of what it means for the function of normal society to come to a crashing halt. Uh, was an amazing thing and, and Corrupted Blood had these incredible emotionally weighty effects and I, I don't think if the if the designers had set out to make it a sort of bone-chilling experience to, to see society crumble around you as a result of this, I don't think they could have done better. So we saw actually the full uh, gamut, I think, of responses that have been anticipated and described, everything from sort of a fatalism of like, well, I've always wanted to do the equivalent of running around naked with a rubber glove on my head. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you can't actually do that in World of Warcraft. Um, to people who decided to to role-play very seriously as uh, good Samaritans or people trying to enforce blockades or, or, or behave well. Um, but the way people, I think, internalized some of the behavior um, both, I, I think, showed how easily the reactions that are described to us, both from history and from art... Uh, become very natural in that setting, whereas they seem very unreal when you're hearing them described, but to watch them happen inside the setting was kind of amazing. And then also I think people who took their inspiration for how they should behave in such a setting from histories and from art that they had seen. So there was someone who decided that what he needed to do was be a prophet of doom from the town hall steps, and so he was standing there relating his experience of Watching what was unfolding all around us, but as though it was end times, and so he—you should have watched him. He then he exploded, and then and it was and there was panic in the streets, and, and the the end is coming. Um, um, that's not epidemiologically sound practice, but it's a very human endeavor, uh, and I think that's a beautiful story that that glorifies the the ability of humans to find. Peace and denial. That is not a way to be safe, but it is a way to live when you are unsafe.
2: What exactly is a pandemic?
1: So, a pandemic has a technical definition that's actually not how it gets used uh, colloquially. And so, a pandemic is simply an ongoing outbreak. So, an, outbra- uh, an outbreak is when transmission is increasing, more people are getting sick than are recovering, um, on multiple continents at once, simultaneously. Um, so that means that there can be incredibly benign pandemics. Um, th- there are frequently pandemics of colds. That's We're not really worried about that, but technically speaking, that's a, that can be a pandemic. Um, when we colloquially use the word pandemic, and in fact, we do tend to let the colloquialism spill over into technical discussion, uh, what we mean is an outbreak of global concern occurring on multiple continents simultaneously. And so when we say global concern, we mean likely to cause large-scale morbidity or mortality.
2: We don't know how we will react to something until it actually happens. It's a situation that fascinated the writer Albert Camus in his 1947 novel, The Plague. Neil Bartlett has adapted the play for the Arcola Theatre in Dalston, London.
3: I had first read The Plague when I was a teenager. It's one of the sort of list of serious books that if you're a bookish, slightly rebellious teenager that you read and you... uh dream of smoking French cigarettes and understanding existentialism. And then I put it away on my bookshelf. And a couple of years ago, something about the way the world is turning and the kind of rhetoric and language that is being used now in all sorts of contexts Ideas of invasion, ideas of infection, ideas of who is clean and who is tainted, who has the right to be somewhere, who doesn't have the right to be somewhere. Um, Something made me remember the story, and in particular, an extremely shocking sentence uh, that occurs right at the end of the book, where a doctor who has worked throughout The Epidemic, The Plague, which the story recounts, says uh, what you learn in a time of plague is that there is more to admire about one's fellow human beings than to despair of or despise. And like most people I know, I'm not sure if that's true, but I really think that's a sentence worth thinking about Uh, he does a brilliant thing in the novel he presents the plague as being both absolutely plausible and absolutely impossible he says in the novel it takes place in oran a major city in french then french algeria in northern africa and it takes place in the 1940s he says that in the first sentence of the novel so you know it's not true There was no outbreak of plague, of bubonic plague, in Iran in the 1940s. And yet he describes the plague with such forensic documentary realism that you have to admit to the possibility of this actually happening. Camus' plague starts with one person trying to find their keys to the door to their apartment and they look down and there is a rat dying in the hallway and that's where it starts. First of all, there's one rat, then there's two, then there's three. And then the caretaker in the building where the rats have died says, ''That's funny, I've got a sore throat.'' And then within weeks, the city is plunged into catastrophe. And eventually, the death toll sweeps away a large part of the city. Uh, it's quarantined. And then eventually, a serum begins to have some effects. And then the plague goes whence it came... However, the novel ends with the famous caveat.
4: Indeed, as he listened to the cries of joy that rose above the town, Ryu recalled that this joy was always under threat. He knew that this happy crowd was unaware of something that one can read in books, which is that the plague, bacillus never dies or vanishes entirely, that it can remain dormant for dozens of years in furniture and clothing, that it waits patiently in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, handkerchiefs and old papers, and that perhaps the day will come when, for the instruction or misfortune of mankind, the plague will rouse its rats and send them to die in some well-contented city.
3: It's one of the great sentences in French literature the ending of the novel. And that sentence rings true in all sorts of appalling ways. It's very clear he's not talking just about the bacillus that carries bubonic plague in mammal-to-human transmission. He's talking about all the evils which lie dormant and which erupt. Does any epidemic of any kind ever just happen um no no nothing ever just happens nothing in human affairs just happens straight away the feeling is oh what can we do it's such a huge problem it's such an overwhelming problem so the mythology of plague makes a plague of any kind much harder to combat At the grassroots level of asking voters to approve of funding programs. Because people are going to say, well, what can you do?
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: How important is our reaction to a pandemic? Now, we obviously can't create a real outbreak of disease. So instead, we sent one of our producers to try out the board game Pandemic.
6: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, which cards have you guys Well, got? I've
7: got a uh, Baghdad or Istanbul.
6: Oh, OK, so you could go into those areas and sort yeah, them. Yeah,
4: I could. I, think, I feel like I've got some pretty useful cards because
6: I've got... Mexico My Mexico name Mexico. is Rob Harris. I'm a games designer. I uh, work with board games, uh, and I also design games for museums and educational institutions. Well, basically, um, Pandemic is a game where we all work on the same team, so it's a cooperative game. So quite different from the games of sort of 80s and 90s, where you're all sort of fighting tooth and nail and all families fall out. Um, We're all going to win together or lose together. During the game, there's going to be plenty of outbreaks of four different colours of diseases. And they're basically going to keep spreading out across the board. And if they overwhelm the world, then we lose. And there's a mass panic. And we've basically done our jobs very badly. And mankind is wiped out. Um, so we'll be trying to eradicate and cure those diseases by working together. Uh, I'm, I'm Robbie. I'm just a, um, a hard-working medic um, who's just trying to remove all the cubes of a single colour every time I
4: treat the city and administer known cures for free. That's, uh, that's all I'm trying to do, according to my card.
6: Yep. Yeah. I am a green operations expert. But look, I'm, I'm, I look like a, a doer. He's on the, on the walkie-talkie. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, that uh, a theme where you essentially is about the possibility of the world being wiped out is so popular and such a, a kind of family game as well, which is really nice. Um, it just goes to show that you can never know which themes are going to work. Dum, 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 dum. You can lose this game very quickly, by the way. I oh, really so i point that out. Um, hopefully we won't.
4: Well, could, it could be a matter of, you know. It could be a
6: matter of turns if we get overwhelmed. Really? Um, Essen, which is funny. It's not a major city in Germany. No, it's not. The While the team
2: continues playing, place where I want to look at how pandemics have played out in popular culture, starting with the most famous example, the zombie. Roger Luckhurst is Professor in Modern and Contemporary Literature at Birkbeck, London.
8: Well the standard answer for what the zombie represents uh, after Romero is that they are a kind of version of ourselves, but uh, quite a bleak version of ourselves as idiots really as as a kind of mindless mess. Uh, so Day, Dawn of the Dead is the classic film where they wander around a shopping mall uh, and you know the narrative is well they have some kind of instinct that's left they come back to what's most important to them, which turns out to be shopping uh, and that's been a very, very influential narrative and you'll find uh you know professors like me are constantly saying that's what zombies represent but i think it's not just that or if it was just that i think it wouldn't have lasted so long and like vampires they're so malleable and mobile as a metaphor i think things like the walking dead are trying to work out precisely where the limits of the human are Uh, and what it means to be a human uh, what it means to sympathize or empathize with other uh, human beings so I think you know right now we inevitably see hordes and hordes and hordes of people trying to get through walls, trying to get through gates, it inevitably evokes refugee crisis of mass migration, of anxiety about foreigners of the threat of foreigners to way of life and so on. So there are these things that I think are constantly roiling around this metaphor of the zombie This great stuff by Priscilla Wald about the outbreak narrative I mean it's a book that's about 10 years old uh, and Priscilla Wald talks about a kind of standard narrative about how we as cultures in the West tend to narrate the beginning of outbreaks, and it's nearly always that idea of um, the, the the lone individual, the patient zero who brings uh, death to the culture? Whether it's Typhoid Mary, or whether it's Patient Zero, uh, that whole mythical figure uh, at the beginning of the AIDS outbreak, and this sense of it starting from a single person who infects through through some kind of immorality, really, some you know sexual transmission or uh, inappropriate intimacy or um, being dirty foreigner. These these kinds of narratives, and then it sort of spreads out from there and that idea of the outbreak narrative is clearly something that's been picked up uh, in current pandemics so we nearly always talk about ideas of the patient zero uh, which is then turned into cultural narratives like the zombie as well I mean I think it's And they merged together. So right at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, for example, um, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article called Night of the Living Dead about this new outbreak in New York of this new kind of disease. And they called it that because they suspected that it was coming from Haiti, so that it was migrants who were coming up the coast carrying this kind of exotic foreign disease that was infecting uh american young men uh and that idea of 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 an outbreak coming from beyond is exactly the same as typhoid mary coming from ireland and infecting again the you know the young american state always the same kind of narrative and you can see that again in popular narratives of, of zombie outbreaks as well very striking that during the ebola outbreak uh, in uh, West Africa, there were doctored images from the film World War Z that were passed around saying that the Ebola victims are coming back um, from from the dead uh, and they are in, going to infect you, you need to, this is what they look like, you need to kind of um, defend yourself from them. So there's still a lot of fear, I think. But on the other hand, because we're interested in the subjectivity of the zombie now, I think there is this sense in which people are trying to imagine what it might be like uh, in, in that
2: situation and not just abject them. Multimedia artist John Walter wants to repair the dialogue between science and the way in which we digest pandemics and culture by focusing on HIV. We met him in his studio in South London.
7: So I'm John Walter and I'm an artist and I make a variety of things. I'm not really working in one medium, but I come from a painting background and a drawing background, I make video, I make installation, I make performance, sculpture, prints, books, you name it. So, what's missing in the discussion around HIV is uh, humour, dark humour very often, although that does occur, but not necessarily in the visual representation of it. Um, A way to get people engaged in it that aren't already. So there's a strong uh, community of uh, artists, writers, academics for whom it is their interest, but how do you get people that don't know they're interested in it to care? And I do that by br- bringing in things that they might be interested in, such as Coronation Street or Nasha from the Beano, the, the the normal mode is to illustrate the science and really be a craftsperson. That's not what I'm doing. Um, I'm, a, I'm I'm using the science as metaphor for something else. And it's innovating the art. And then hopefully this, the art is innovating the science in terms of how we exchange ideas creatively. Yeah, I've sort of found myself working in this way. Partly, I think, because... I knew more and more people that were HIV positive or that this was more of an issue, and it's always been an issue for me in terms of uh, my sex life and something that I might encounter. Um, But then also in terms of working with a scientist. So yeah, I suppose I get to indulge both sides of my brain, the very academic side and then this very playful side. Something that Greg and I agree on and the way I think he would describe it is It's not important why I'm interested in something, it's important why why you are and what are your interests and how do I explain it to you in your terms. So in the collaboration really we're displacing each other's interests within one another and finding unexpected information. And so that meeting point is really a creative one in which art and science both can benefit from the discussion. And I go and attend lab meetings on a very practical basis and immerse myself uh, in the science. I, I read up on the science, I read the papers, I get to know the people. And I also hang out with them socially. So it works on a formal and an informal basis. I suppose the fear aspect is the thing to get over. And, and, and the way I've dealt with that partly is using humour, which seems like a counterintuitive move, and also colour and visual excess, and decorativeness, and joy, actually, because it's an incredibly uh, sophisticated thing. Um, the way the virus works, I respect it incredibly, because it interacts with the host cell so much, and that's you can't really look at one without looking at the other. It, I, I have a more pragmatic approach to the virus, in that I think you have to engage with it in order to... I don't think it's about defeating it. You can use n- n- um military nar- narratives around minefields in terms of thinking about how the virus populates itself, but in terms of um I don't see I don't see it as a as needing to defeat it. Yeah, I don't think there is a hurdle to overcome now in the same way as there there was in the uh, 90 the 80s and 90s. It's different. It's you know there is an issue around access to prep and that should come in time here. It's going through in Scotland, it seems. I don't know what we have to fight for. That's not my interest. My interest is in that there is a a different way of engaging with viruses in terms of understanding them for our own benefit um, because they don't work how how I thought they did, and also in terms of as, as, as metaphor for art.
2: Back to our team
7: playing Pandemic. Do you think I should try and sort this out, like you have in New York, or should maybe I use one of the blacks? Yeah, we can spread around a bit. I think. So then I could go back. Maybe
6: good for you to go over there, and then you could um, build the research. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think this is Pandemic's definitely one of the games that's popularized cooperative games. Um, We're all used to games where you know we compete, Monopoly, and those sort of games. We play at Christmas, and everybody falls out, um, and then go on for hours and hours. Uh, this game actually sets the game up against the players so all the players either win together or lose together. One of the things I love about pandemic is that you' you're essentially heroes. you're playing a heroic actions, um, but you're not sort of uh, astronauts or cowboys or what have you. You are members of the CDC. you know you're scientists. You're the sort of unsung heroes that um, you know if there is an outbreak as there was of Ebola in in um, Africa. Um, these are the people that fly out, you know, to sort this out. And um, we don't really ever get to know their names. Um, but with this game, we get to play as them, you know, and um, hopefully be as successful as they were at that time. Um, it's, I think quite often uh, games and art films in general, they sort of look at pandemics in a way of a sort of zombie movie, you know, um, that everything's gone terrible and there's just it's almost a survivor instinct. You have to survive... Uh, the inevitable, uh, whereas this game sort of turns that on the head and says no, we don't need to go down that route, we can actually solve the problem before um, it happens and in fact you know, if we win the game then we've eradicated all of the diseases. If. If. That's a big if at this point in the game, let's see. Madrid. Oh, oh no. Okay. no. Madrid is connected unfortunately. I go here. Oh god, Madrid ah. very connected. see. So. Okay. This is a disaster.
3: This I'm panning. I said three, so, two, three. so, God, so that's four. So now let's
6: go. We need one, and then that's going to go you as know, well. You know, and then all of these go. It's okay. Oh, 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 it it's a well. chain reaction.
4: It's
7: over. That goes again. It's a domino effect.
6: Oh, no! no!
3: <laughs>
6: the world was not safe in our hands, <laughs> uh, gentlemen. We ignored the blues for too long, I think. Uh, yeah. We actually did really well. We cured two. That's and we were good. on the brink of curing red as well. So.
2: One of the reasons there's so much panic around pandemics is because they often take us by surprise. So how can we tell when an outbreak is going to happen? We spoke to Lloyds Bank's Emerging Risks team to see if it's possible to predict a pandemic.
5: Gallery OK, yeah, I'm Trevor Maynard, um, Head of Innovation at Lloyds of London. This report was aimed um, very much at the market, the insurance market, to say, um, you know, you might not... necessarily covering pandemic explicitly but you know it will have economic effects and think through how it might affect you so pandemics um, have continually hit the world um, with a return period for influenza of about 30 to 50 years since about the 1600s so we realized that um, there was a potential for this to happen in the next 10 years just by looking at the past and there's no reason to suppose the past won't repeat itself Um, And in a sense, almost on cue, the swine flu um, pandemic did hit in 2009. So that's how we became convinced by looking at the science. And that's always our approach, actually, is to be guided by the very strong science in this subject. So in the report on pandemics, I guess the key finding was that it was a uh, very important business issue, had very significant economic effects potentially, all depending on the severity of the pandemic, but it was something we realised had insurance relevance and, and we needed to think about. So the risk of a pandemic in the UK and, and mainland Europe, um, in the majority due to, you know, good health services, etc., is probably lower than in some other parts of the world, but I guess the key take-home is that just because we have that, um, because of the globalised travel... Um, and the fact that, you know, we're all human beings at the end of the world, then, at the end of the day. Ooh, that was a, um, Can I say that one again? <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs>
2: but it's not all doom and gloom. Here's Neil Bartlett again, talking about the message of the plague.
3: I don't think the message of the book, which is terrifying, is either optimistic or pessimistic. I think it is asking of each of us to imagine, in a time of plague, what would you do? And also perhaps to imagine you are living in a time of plague. This is not a hypothetical situation. Catastrophe is upon us. How are you responding to that? The novel shows a small group of interconnected characters, each of whom respond to the epidemic in very different ways. Some people despair and simply say it's the way of the world, there is nothing that can be done. Um, Some people fight heroically. Some people fight resolutely unheroically. They say there's no heroism about this. One character says it's like the question of 2 plus 2 equals 4. Either they equal for or they don't. Either we have a moral duty to battle against this or we don't. So it presents you with a very challengingly wide range of moral options, spiritual options.
4: What's true of all the evils in the world is true of plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves all the same. When you see the misery it brings, you need to be a madman, or a coward, or stone blind to give in tamely to the plague.
2: Converging Cultures was made possible with the help of the Wellcome Trust. The series was written by Caroline Christie, and you can find more interesting articles and podcasts at littleatoms.com.